You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, thanks uh, to Daniel for that very refreshing um, witness that he gave and his passion for sharing Christ with others and, and his refreshing humility. Well, speaking of humility, one of the most humbling experiences I have ever had in my life is the experience of parenting. Now, you think before you come become a parent, you think, you know, I am a well-adjusted, educated, resourceful, networked, healthy, and loving human being. And I was once a kid, and I remember much of my childhood, so I've got that piece nailed, too. So how hard can this be? Straining. That is the best word I can use to describe um, my experience of parenthood. Using every bit of the resource I have mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and yet still struggling. Still finding myself at a loss. What does this baby want? How does this toddler know how to push my buttons? And why is the magic of my brilliant new discipline system not working? As my spouse Justin so well stated in the uh, early months of our very first child, she's only one little baby, and yet she's kicking our butts. Lord, help me. It is humbling to be a parent. Not a parent? Well, maybe some of your humbling moments occur on the road, like George disclosed last week with his tickets. Maybe you're a rational, law-abiding, and kind, patient driver, and you see your fellow drivers as having the right to get to their destinations safely. You see that your agenda is no more important than theirs or anyone's. But something happens when you get behind the wheel. And impatience and selfishness take over. And your thoughts and actions towards those other drivers around you are not as benevolent. They start to change. And you think, who is this monster I've become? Are you seeing a theme here? This is a pastor confession month. (laughs) More next week. (laughs) Well, the subject of our case for hope today is humility. And we are looking at Romans 7. And we won't get into the whole chapter. Frankly, we don't have enough time. And so I hope you'll have a chance to dig more deeply into it in your small groups this week. But in broad summary, uh, in the first part of chapter 7... Uh, Paul is addressing grace and the law, grace and Torah. And Paul first speaks to those who think that our relationship with God is navigated through obedience to the law. Paul himself has had a lot of experience with this, and he says, no, that's not the case. We are bonded to Jesus Christ, not the law. And Paul also addresses those who want to uh, do away with the law, those who criticize it. 
And he assures them that the law is not to be blamed for sin. The law is holy, and it can identify sin, but it can't prevent it. He even talks about how sin can manipulate the law. But in all this, he says, God has changed our relationship to the law. And because of Jesus, the law can be what it was originally meant to be, a guide to obedience to God by the power of the Holy Spirit and not a means to earn favor with God. And so this leads us into uh, the text that we are going to consider. And beginning around verse 14, Paul begins to describe an inner conflict that serves for us as a mirror for our own reflection, our own self-examination. He highlights the struggle as we try and live the life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, as you're able, please stand. We are going to read Romans 7, beginning with verse 18 through verse 25. And because we are going to try and claim this passage for ourselves today, that's much of the work we're about today in church. Um, um, So when you see a place where Paul says, man, uh, say woman, if that is a better description of you. Romans 7, verse 18 and following. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched woman that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Gracious God, may these words that we have just read penetrate our hearts, enliven us, and speak to us today. By the power of your Holy Spirit, and in your Son's name we pray, amen. Well, did you hear that battle language? Paul describes an all-out war, uh, which includes prisoners and uh, people in need of rescue. The battle he is describing is the painful tension that we find within our nature. A conflict between desire and performance. What we want to do and what we actually do. Between God's will for us and the weakness of human flesh. What Paul is talking about here is the slow process of sanctification as we live into grace. Justification has already happened 
We are in right relationship with God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And nothing can change this. We are forgiven. We are free to live as God created us to be. But we are still human. And change is slow and has its ups and downs. And Paul describes this painful process of growing up in Christ, which involves struggle. C.S. Lewis presents this idea in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, it is a fictional work where Uncle Screwtape, a senior devil, writes a series of letters to his nephew, Wormwood, an apprentice, as he coaches him on how to snatch a soul away from the enemy. The enemy of the devil, of course, would be God. Screwtape, this senior devil, uh, describes what he calls the law of undulation. And this is what Screwtape writes. While humans' spirits can be directed to an eternal object... Their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. Lewis depicts that humans are constantly going through cycles, and these cycles exist in our relationships and our interests, our efficiencies at work, and these cycles are experienced as well in our relationship with God. And our text echoes this experience for us. In our mind, in our heart, in our soul, we desire to serve God, but our nature leans towards sin. There are no illusions here, should we have any. Martin Luther says that this text sets us free from the presumption that we are flawless. And so we find ourselves in a crisis on the side of grace. I'm in Christ, but I'm vulnerable to sin. And perhaps Jesus said this best in the Garden of Gethsemane as the disciples kept taking little catnaps despite his repeated requests to them saying to stay awake. And you all probably know this line, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, some of what we encounter in the world we live in, and even in the church, can be a tendency to gloss over this inner conflict. And we do this in two ways. First, I would say in our language for sin, In a culture um, that is in the face of pluralism and modernism and secularism, we have at best reframed and pushed to the margins, downsized, and even forgotten. Practical theologian and uh, celebrated preacher Barbara Brown Taylor wrote a short and uh, excellent book, entitled Speaking of Sin, The Lost Language of Salvation. And in it, she defines uh, the price of abandoning the language of sin, what it costs us. And this is what she says. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death 
no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace because the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. And with this, Taylor goes on to argue that we've given this theological language for sin over to medical and legal terms and thus reframing it. So sin, in a medical sense, might be called sickness or pathology, and and in a legal sense, it might be called lawlessness. And so it would follow that the solution would be treatment or punishment. But that's not the full picture. Because we know at its core that sin is wrecked relationship. Wrecked relationship with God, with one another, with the whole created order. And since God designs us for relationship, sin goes against God's purposes for us. And so this change in the language for sin gives us limited ways to deal with human failure, ways that are incomplete, that aren't the whole picture. For instance, sin is not merely a set of behaviors to avoid, but it's a way of life to be exposed and changed. It's not just a debt to be paid, but it's about recovery of full life. We've lost some language for sin. And secondly, we've succumbed to the tendency to relativize um, when it comes to sin, to use relativism. Our well-meaning communities try to um, justify or patch over things as we move, rather than help us, move away from the abyss of sin. And so that leads us more towards death than life. Isn't it often uh, the accrual of what we might call the small sins that slowly move us away from God, that gentle slope that perhaps is more dangerous than the big drop-off? And so we might attempt a small confession with a good friend. And it's met with, oh, that's not so bad. Give yourself a break. And sometimes... There's truth to that. Sometimes we are too hard on ourselves. But sometimes we do a disservice to ourselves and to others in minimizing sin. Maybe rather than smoothing over our discomfort of the spirit that's prompting us to say something's wrong, maybe it would be much more healing to help one another, to help one another name sin for ourselves and the consequences of it that we feel alienation and disconnection from God and from others. When we are able to recognize and name sin for what it is, distance between where we are and who God created us to be, that's when we move away from death and towards life. We all have different pictures of what sin is. We can probably name them right now in our head, but the experience is common to all. It's being cut off from life. 
turning away from the light towards the darkness, pushing away arms of love, reaching for that forbidden fruit, hurting someone before we can be hurt, or feeling that emptiness in ourselves. In all cases, it's alienation from life. But Taylor does an interesting thing as she goes on in her case. She proposes that perhaps, just perhaps, sin is a helpful and hopeful word. Something I never considered before. And listen to what she says. Sin is our only hope. Because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken. And there is no hope of transformation for a world whose inhabitants accept that it is sadly but irreversibly wrecked. Have you ever thought about this? That when we call out sin, there's hope. A confession of sin awakens us and gives us the potential to repent again. Perhaps it's a confession of hope. Hope is engaging that struggle so that it doesn't lead to perhaps more dangerous things, chronic guilt, or a stagnation that doesn't lead to any change. Confession is the beginning of the road to humility. We're in a season of Lent, and do you ever wonder about Lent? I mean, I've, I've lived Lent for a while, and I, it still perplexes me at times. Why is it our tradition to return to the wilderness? Why would we do this if Christ has risen and set us free for new life? Why examination, confession, and a call to repentance and renewal? Lent does mean spring. And we know, for those of us that work in the earth or observe that, that springtime is an activity that involves examination of soil, assessment of plants, removal of debris or things that are dead, weeding and pruning. All this is needed for new life to emerge. And so we could think of Lent, perhaps, as the season of greening of the soul, active participation into this new life, a time-consuming process that is awkward, even undesirable or ugly at moments. Well, the process that Lent imitates over this period of 40 days is really the work of our lifetime, living deeply into humility and grace. Lent begins on Ash Wednesday as we engage in confession and receive ashes on our forehead in the shape of a cross. Words are pronounced. You come from dust, and to dust you shall return. And this austere ashen cross reminding us of our mortality, not something we want to hear every day probably, this cross is placed over the watermark that we received in baptism. And so we have this promise of new life underlying the reminder of death. 
eternity wrapped around mortality. And so it's fitting that Lent gives us a reason to pause and examine, to acknowledge our inner conflict, our sin, our desire to follow Christ, and our passionate need for grace. So why Lent? Because we need continual rescue. Because of the two cries that are in our text. Wretched one that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The cry of despair and the rescue. And so Paul gives us the gift by giving voice to this humble movement towards salvation with the inner conflict he describes in the cry for rescue, followed by gratitude for the rescuer. And we understand this description. You can even see it in the text that this is a cyclical thing. It's not linear. Being saved doesn't happen all at once or move along a prescribed continuum. It is happening, and it's yet to happen. The good news is the plan of salvation is comprehensive. It involves our whole self. It involves the individual, involves the whole community, the whole race, the whole earth. The wholeness or shalom of God in Jesus Christ. And so salvation is not merely in a sense, to a set of particular set of beliefs intellectually, but it is active. It's responsive. Do you remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Upon an encounter with Jesus, he gave half of his possessions to the poor, and he promised to pay back fourfold everyone that he had defrauded. And what did Jesus say of Zacchaeus? He pronounced that salvation had come to his house. Zacchaeus, as a response to grace, sought to bring about repair. And this grace was born of humility and gratitude. Grace that isn't just an experience of forgiveness, but grace given to us for this work of transformation and new life through the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is alluding to. Did you see in the text, the spirit is behind all this. And next week, Paul will uh, continue this examination of the spirit as, as, he, as we look at chapter 8, a wonderful chapter. New life comes when we recognize that something is wrong. And we receive pardon from God and Jesus. And it's not the stopping place. It's the starting place. Just like Zacchaeus, the response to grace is repair and movement toward relationship. What a powerful way of living into repentance and grace, stepping back into life. And sometimes our steps are unsure. We may be more like a toddler that needs to hold on to the hands of Jesus and look at his face and be encouraged as we toddle along. But that's a picture of biblical restoration and transformation. A reunion with God and one another, mending what sin wrecked. Today, we are taking communion together. And when we do, we remind ourselves that sin is not the main event of our lives. 
graces. At this table, the wretchedness of sin and evil encounter the beauty and grace in Jesus Christ. It's where sinner and rescuer meet. It's where despair and thanksgiving mingle. The weakness of our flesh and the strength of Jesus Christ. The being and the becoming. The now and the not yet. And these tensions that we bring, these struggles by the power of the Holy Spirit birth something over and over again. Humility and a fuller knowledge of grace that is for us. Gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, that sin does not have the final word, that you have rescued us from ourselves and from sin. We thank you that we can't always do everything on our own strength. We know that. We can't get it right. That is only by your spirit that we walk. And so we ask that you would show us what is wrecked within us, what is wrecked in our world, and that you would help us to be a people that mend what is broken. And so we present ourselves to this end, and we present what we have, what you have made us to be, who we are, what you've given us, our talents, our treasure. And we give to this end that this broken world may experience your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.